as long as you're scrolling through your phone, checking out your friend's latest Instagram post, take a moment to download the Radio Parami app. Take the app with you wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Stay updated with top and bottom of the hour news and the latest weather forecast. Plus, you can listen live to local talk shows, nationally syndicated programs, and listen to previous interviews you might have missed, all in crystal clear digital audio. It's called the Radio Potomy app. Find it in your Google Play or Apple App Store from your friends at News Talk 710 KURV. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Here's Zach. The governor of the great state of Texas, Greg Abbott, thanking the state house for its report into the Uvalde school shooting. Abbott says the detailed account shows that there are serious concerns about how police responded to Robb Elementary on May 24th and that legislature will come with bills to improve public and school safety. That's coming up down the pike. Joining us on 710KURV to kind of dissect what's uh, what, what the report revealed to us is uh, criminal justice professor Phil Etheridge from UTRGV, our guest right now. So what were some big takeaways for you in this one? Well, first of all, good afternoon. Uh, I read the report, and it's very, very comprehensive. Uh, first of all, they just talked about the overall law enforcement failure. And, and what's amazing, it's been on the news all day that there were a total of 376 law enforcement officers uh, that responded. I, there's, a, there's a whole list of them in the report. And many of the departments, although they talk about the large group of Border Patrol and DPS, there were a large number of uh, area sheriff's departments and other small departments. They had one or two officers respond. And so the first thing I take away is there's absolutely no way to control that many officers from so many different departments. And uh, what came out then was the, a complete failure of this incident command uh, that it seems that uh, in the uh, school district's own uh, planning that the school district police chief was going to be the incident commander. Uh, that has come under a lot of uh, uh, scrutiny. But the big takeaway I have is the school itself and what came out of this was the school was built, what, what they said that the school was built in 1955. And therefore, uh, when, you, when you talk about uh, what type of doors it had and what type of um, uh, security it had, the reality was there was no police officer assigned to that school. Uh, the, the school district had six police officers covering nine schools. And this was one of the older schools. And unfortunately... Uh, I, I know this has come up a little bit, but there just seemed to be a failure in the locks and the doors and the maintenance. And I, I know that's not, you know, the great thing when everybody talks about a failure, uh, but you have to consider the number of schools and the reality that this guy walked through. Uh, but also what came out was there was a failure in the system to notify the teachers. Uh, you know, we always think about where well, you get on the intercom and the public address system, but the system used in that school was an electronic system. And what appears that a lot of teachers didn't even know there was a, a lockdown. And then just one other aside there, there also were these bailouts. And these were chases through the city by Border Patrol DPS. And what, what came out was there had been 46 lockdowns yeah. in that school and the teachers yeah. Didn't, didn't even pay attention to these lockdown uh, 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 announcements anymore because they were so common. So those are two or three things that came out. I got a, Davey, I already called this one. Uh, let's start at the beginning <laughs> with the 376 number of law enforcement officers. There. And you said a lot of them were from different, you know, uh, from different Agencies. groups. Agencies. And uh, yeah, so they're were, there. there you have all these guys there. Departments responded to this. Twenty-three different departments. Holy cow! <laughs> so, I'm, I'm thinking if if I'm somebody and I'm just getting to the scene and I have no idea what's going on, what is the standard operating procedure for a situation like that? Like, who's who's who? How do you assert? In, in a perfect world, the way it's supposed to work, like how would you get one guy in charge and how do you get that one guy to yeah. commandeer 376 law enforcement officers? 
Well, what, what, what's supposed to be done is somewhere, and we see this on the news and we see this in movies and television, there should be some kind of either a tent set up or some kind of emergency vehicle that says incident command or emergency command center. And every officer, no matter police officers, fire, ambulance, no matter who shows up, they should go to that location and say, what do you need? Where do you need me? How do yeah. I get there? And it wasn't set up. And so that's why, sadly, we see in these videos, officers, different officers coming in and out of that location in the school, different officers walking around for an hour outside the school because nobody was in charge and nobody told them what to do. Uh, some decided to get the kids out. So, you know, a group went over and started smashing windows and getting kids. But th that's what's supposed to happen. There's supposed to be one centralized place that everybody goes to. And there was none as far as I can tell. So, and I don't mean this, I don't mean this to be flippant and I don't mean this to be funny or anything like that, but it's, it's essentially those, everybody was just kind of looking at each other wondering like, so what are you going to do about it? I don't know. I'm not going to do anything. You're going to do something about it. They, they had well, no direction. Well, I, I think so. And, and what's also interesting is except for the large DPS and the large border patrol and the Uvalde police department, all of these other departments, the, 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 the campus police department only had five or six officers there. All of these other agencies had one or two officers. And so who knows what they did? Who knows where they went? Because obviously their, their radio frequencies would be different. They, they, they didn't have anybody supervising them. And so I think they probably looked around and said, well, there's a group trying to help some kids. Let's go help them. Let's walk into school. What's going on? Let's walk around. I think there were probably, of these 367 except for the two large departments, there were probably about 100 to 150 officers literally just walking around the campus with, with no idea what to do or, or, or where they should be. And, that, and that's very difficult. Is, that, that's just terrible. Our guest is Professor Phil Etheridge. He's a criminal justice professor at UTRGV. He also has some law enforcement experience. He's our guest right now. Davis Rankin, go ahead. Your guest. Um, I have a question about <clears throat> the Texas Department of Safety, Public Safety. Uh, and I'll just ask this as a predicate, wouldn't, uh, in a situation like this, given that the Uvalde School Police Department is probably not as well trained and not as um, experienced as DPS troopers or Texas Rangers, and that's an assumption, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't the DPS get back out of this? I, you know, Steve McCraw, the head of the Department of Public Safety, which oversees the Rangers as well, was it three days after the event? And he just laid into the school district cops about what a rotten job they did. Then we find out there was DPS troopers everywhere and Texas Rangers. His people didn't assert control either. He didn't assert well, control. I, I agree with you. And, and I, now there seems to be uh, an investigation that McCraw said is going to start. And to answer your question, my, my question is this. At what high-level rank did a DPS uh, supervisor, and, and I'm talking about they have lieutenants and captains and, and go yeah. all the way up. I think somewhere in there, there was a fairly high officer, high-ranking officer that could have done what you did. And I think... So sooner or later, someone's going to do an investigation and say, at what point did DPS command staff or even Border Patrol staff, when did they arrive and what did they do? And, and that's not even addressed here. But what is addressed, uh, which, which I'm glad in this report, is basically said, look, every law enforcement agency that responded really failed. And I think... Uh, the reason they did that in this report is to bring up the fact that there were these large agencies like DPS and Border Patrol that could have or should have. And uh, again, I think in many, many, many situations, they do come in and they do take over. And so I think that's that should be looked at. What should the le legislature do? What should law enforcement do? And I, I'm, I'm assuming every police chief of any sort, anybody in authority is looking at this and figuring out what do I got to do to make sure this doesn't happen to me? Well, I think one of the things I'll probably look at, and, and this actually came up in the report, is a, a couple of years ago, I think in 2019, the legislature actually 
mandated that schools uh, write up some kind of report. And what's interesting is Uvalde actually had a report. They were recognized by the state and by, uh, by agencies as having an active shooter plan. And we saw how that worked out. So I think that legislation needs to be looked at. What also needs to be looked at is just this idea of uh, what, what can happen in a school with these uh, problems with the building itself. And some money may come out, but this is what came out in the report. There are 80,000 buildings in schools in the state of Texas, and there are 1,204 school systems. And they said the, the largest system was the Houston system, but then they said there's some very small local little schools that have 100 or 200 children. And so I yeah. think no matter what the legislation does with the schools itself, I think what it's going to come down to is, well, this is what Uvalde said they had. They had a plan. You know, everything was intact. Everybody should have known what was going on. Uh, I think one of the other big areas is just money for communication. Because what came out of this report is yeah. even police officers in the building that could see each other down the hallway could not talk to each other on their radio. I mean, that's just unbelievable in the year 20. That is incredible. So th that may come up. Some money may go into that to try to solve that. Well, I hope they're able to figure this part out because, I mean, now the question is, and again, I'm not being flippant, but it's it's a legitimate question. How many how many law enforcement officers does it take to stop a school shooting? There's one if he's the right guy, the right right person, the right place, with the right, right weapon. Up, and and apparently in this case, 376 wasn't wasn't the answer because none of them, I like Davis is saying, was the right one. Apparently, I must well, suggest. And, and, you know, the, the typical SWAT unit is about five to seven people. And they talk about going in in kind of this triangle shape where the first couple people have shields. The next couple people have uh, some equipment to break in the door, whatever's needed. And then the last ones have the guns. And they go in and it takes a very small unit to go in and do this. The reason it's so small is because they're, they're well-trained, they're well-equipped. And you don't need 10 or 12 officers walking up and down the, uh, trying to figure out what's going on. I mean, this, this was terrible. When, when you talk about keys and unlocked doors, uh, you needed one unit. And I think they had enough officers doing, uh, but they just weren't trained to do that. And so that's when all these different entities just came in and, and couldn't do it. But, but no, your, your answer really is one. You know, one officer could have gone down there, I think, shot off that lock, I've at least found out if the door was unlocked. But once you get a huge group, then literally nobody does anything because they're just watching everybody else not do everything. A different Honestly, dynamic takes over when it's 376 as opposed to three. Yeah, no, I'm not going to lie. That, that that does make a lot of sense because if, if there's that many people there and they're all kind of just looking at each other wondering what's going on, nothing is going to happen. And the emergency command center really needed to be set up in that way, and there needed to be better communication. And that probably would have, you, I guarantee you, if, if everything had been, if the standard operating procedure had been followed from the beginning, you wouldn't have had, you wouldn't have had 376 guys showing up because the first, you know, handful, the first couple of handfuls probably would have been able to take this thing out. You don't need 300. They would have I, I been able to complete if, the objective. I wonder if, if they said, well, I, we, I don't know what to do if I don't, do, but if I act, I may screw something up or get a bunch of people killed. I'm just not going to do anything. I'm going to wait for somebody to in authority. But the now, thing is, that's not the way that they're trained, though. Right, know, right Professor Etheridge? Well, no, they're not trained. And, and I think you're, you're, you're both hitting on this. I, I think very sadly, when you have this huge, well, first of all, what came out of this report is the Uvalde city police officers were the first one on scene at the school because they were responding to the call from this funeral home that there had been no. this truck that crashed and they had been shot at by this guy and he was jumping over the fence to the school. So the, the Uvalde city officers were there. The Uvalde city officers have a SWAT unit, and they were the first ones to go into the school, the very first ones. And then a couple of the, uh, the school uh, police officers showed up. My big question is that at the very beginning, what happened to the Uvalde city police with their officers and equipment, and also the sheriff's office, those, those to me 
would have been the first 10 to 15 officers, especially the city, to get there and say, look, we need weapons, we need the shields, we're going in right now. But it seems then by that time this uh, police chief for the school system had taken charge. And what, what was most interesting, and, and I, I need to include this real quickly, the report says the police chief for the school district went into a room that was adjacent to the rooms where the shooter was. But in that room, there were no children. And at that time, there was no sound in the other rooms and there was no shooting. The police chief, according to this report, at that second determined that it was not a hostage situation, but it was a barricaded situation. And he backed off and it was still quiet. And after he got that in his mind, then at that second, it seems that everything stopped for everybody because he yeah. now was saying, no, 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 we don't have anything to worry about, despite the fact that there were 911 calls and there were shots even after that. But, but that, to me, yeah. was the most interesting thing about uh, the report. Yeah, lots of revelations in that report. Thanks a lot for your analysis. Thank you, Dr. Professor Phil Etheridge, criminal justice professor at UTRGV, joining us on Newstalk 710 KURV. You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. News Talk 710 KURV. When news breaks, we break in. Breaking news. Stay alert and listen to the weather forecast. We need to be aware and alert to what's going on. Breaking news means it's happening now. And we mean now. Breaking news underway right now. Breaking news on News Talk 710 KURV means we're bringing you the news as it happens. We have an active shooter, multiple gunshots. In this particular instance, we are in receipt of information. When news breaks, we'll break in. Count on News Talk 710 KURV. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Here's Zach. Davis Rankin, would you do me the pleasure of introducing our esteemed guest? I will do that. Uh, there were multiple systemic failures. This is what the text is the three person Texas House of Representatives Committee appointed by the Speaker. That was, uh, I guess, as good a takeaway from their report uh, as any. The Texas State Senate also has a group of people appointed by the Lieutenant Governor to um, investigate and uh, and investigate what happened and to show it to the world. One of those people is State Senator, longtime State Senator Juan Chuina Hosa. Uh, first off, uh, thanks for being with us, uh, Senator. Second, uh, what, systemic failure, is that the best way to put this? Well, uh, from the very beginning, Davis, uh, when I uh, first uh, learned about the incident uh, and the amount of time it took the police to be able to confront the shooter, it was very obvious uh, that the police uh, failed uh, to confront the shooter and did everything contrary to the training. So, yes, there was a systematic failure uh, across the board uh, from all law enforcement. Uh, now that we know the details, there were all 376 law enforcement officers. Yeah. And now they responded the way they were trained. It's just unbelievable and heartbreaking. What, uh, what information, I don't know what the Senate's plan is. I suppose I should know what the Senate's plan is uh, to reveal whatever it has found. Do you know where that stands? Well, the report that was released by the uh, House Investigative Committee was very thorough, very detailed. Uh, and they really made it clear uh, from all the witnesses they interviewed uh, that there was a failure not only by law enforcement in responding and engaging with the shooter, but also by the school district uh, not following and complying with their own safety plan rules. Yeah. Uh, on top, and then on top of that, uh, the complete breakdown of leadership. Uh, at the at the point of the incident, uh, that, that is just very very uh, disappointing, uh, not only to us public officials, but I'm sure it is to the general public. You know, now there's a one of the things that stands out in my mind from this was I think it was the third day after the head of the Department of Public Safety, uh, Mr. McGraw had a news conference and really lit into the local cops, local law enforcement, what a bad job they did. 
there were a lot, dozens of uh, state troopers and uh, Texas Rangers there. And now I re I understand there's going to be an investigation into their response. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? I always thought that EPS would take control and command of the situation. They're better trained. Uh, they have the uh, equipment to confront the shooter, and they did not. Uh, they allowed the local incident commander, which didn't exist because nobody was in charge, uh, to just complete chaos. I told and I communicated with us, the director, Steve McCraw, that DPS have the right and the authority to take command and take over the situation. Any time yeah. there's uh, a shooting situation, uh, there's always confusion. There's always yeah. chaos. But it doesn't take an hour and a half to figure out that something is wrong. In this, in this type of situation, DPS are taking over after three or four or five minutes one they assess the situation and nobody was in charge. Uh, they should have taken charge and taken command uh, and the leadership uh, in, this, uh, in this type of situation. You have our, any... our guest, our guest is Senator Juan Chuy Hinojosa uh, on the 710KURV. We're talking about the report on Uvalde. And how do you get 376 law enforcement officers in one location and, the, uh, and have such a communication breakdown as what happened? What do we know about that? The communication breakdown that took place was within the school district grounds. Uh, they did not take place in terms of notifying uh, the various law enforcement agencies that were around the area, such as the Border Patrol, the uh, Department of Public Safety, uh, the uh, local police department. So they were notified and, and knew what was going on. They responded immediately. But within themselves, there was not the needed communication to be able to take yeah. control and command of the situation. Uh, and to me, uh, there is a failure of leadership. Once you're there, if you cannot communicate, then you got to go in and take a team yeah. and take the shooter out. Yeah, the, the, uh, can, can the state, state of Texas, to the, to the legislature, order that all law enforcement bodies, well, I was going to say down to tick riders on the bank of the Rio Grande River, but they're federal, can, I think they are, can you order that they all be intercommunicatable so, so that one can talk to another? Because that was one of the problems there. We, uh, we have actually worked very hard in trying to fund and provide communication uh, for there's communication between Border Patrol and DPS and local law enforcement. We have that system in place here in the River Valley. Uh, yeah. You recall years ago, one of the Border Patrol agents was killed uh, in Harlington. Uh, and it happened because there was a lack of communication between the Border Patrol and local police departments. We don't have that problem here in the River and the Valley. In Uvalde, it's a rural community. They don't have the same communication system set up that we do in many areas of the state. Would it be, As, how, does the state, how does the state not step in and pay for it if they have to? I, mean, I don't see how they can not do that. I don't know what you think. The state has available money and grants. We still have over $40 million that many of the school districts and many of these areas have not applied for. Uh, so it's a matter of working with the state and the federal government in terms of trying to secure grants and funding to improve the communication systems, but also more important, to be able to set up safety plans where the local school district will adhere and follow their own rules. Yes, sir. And as far as looking for solutions, um, when nothing went right that day, when everything absolutely went wrong, when we're looking at solutions about this, do we say, well, hey, well, next time maybe they should just follow the standard uh, operating procedure? Next do, time. Or, or do we just look at everything and say, well, this is a good time to just revise everything? We are looking at the different faults and, the, and all the mistakes that were made in this type of situation in Uvalde to be able to provide the correction needed, uh, either by statute and having audits of school districts to make sure they're following the safety plan procedures, but also provide the authority to DPS to come into a situation uh, where the local police, for whatever reason, hasn't taken control of command of an active shooter situation uh, mm -hmm. and, and do a place the training uh, into use to confront the shooter. Yeah. The, the first thing we're looking at is making sure that we provide additional funding and help to our public schools to be able to comply and set in place uh, the necessary 
safety school plan to maximize uh, the protection of our school children. Uh, State Senator Juan Chuyen Hosta, thank you very much for your time. Uh, we got to go, and I know you do too, but we will be back in touch. Thank you very much for your time this afternoon and for watching over what's going on up in the valley. Uh, watching out. This is a statewide, statewide thing now, right, Zach? Oh, yeah. And you're listening to News Talk 710 KURV. You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. You're always on the go. Obviously pretty busy. Busy with work. Picking up my kids from school. From work to kids to running errands, your entire day is a hands-on, never-ending frenzy of activity. Luckily, getting the news is now voice activated. Just say, Alexa, play 710-KURB. I'd like to know what's going on in my world. I gotta know what's going on in my city. Putting the smart in your smart speaker. I'm getting my news from you and my information. For the latest news and to find out what's happening in rich, clear audio. Just say, Alexa, play 710 KURB. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURB and KURB.com. Here's Davis. Hang on, I'm still getting ready to go. No problem. You're on the radio, so none of that, none of those expletives. I don't know why I think that's funny. I have a feeling that Matt <laughs> Wiltoff, who is the president of Driscoll Children's Hospital for the Rio Grande Valley, <clears throat> is a busy man and doesn't have time for my jokes. Thank you very much for being with us. We appreciate it. And uh, before we get, get started, where do you come from? I mean, where do you come from? And then tell us about Driscoll. What, what is it? Uh, Clara Driscoll, I think, was the endower of, of the hospital. That's correct. Yeah. Thanks for having me on today. And, and yep. uh, my name is Matt Woltoff. Like you said, I'm the president of the new Driscoll Children's Hospital here in Edinburgh. And uh, I've been with Driscoll now for going on seven months and um, really excited to be a part of a, 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 the project here in the Valley and the first uh, designated children's hospital here in, in, in the Rio Grande Valley. But I'll tell you a little bit about um, Driscoll and, and like you said who we are and where we come from so you're absolutely right Clara Driscoll uh, was our founder um, she was a South Texas visionary a, a, a rancher uh, a you know entrepreneurial businesswoman and uh, she she one of her claims to fame was she actually saved the, the Alamo yeah she was a, she was a uh, second generation uh, she, her, actually, I'm sorry, her, her, her grandfather served in Sam Houston's army. Wow. And so the Alamo was obviously held a, a special place in her heart. And, uh, and when San Antonio back in the early 1900s was considering tearing down the Alamo yeah. and, and replacing it with a, with a hotel, she actually purchased it and, and, uh, and renovated it and then sold it back. And, and it is what it is today. So, um, so she, she's had a huge hit, impact on, on South Texas, but when she, uh, when she passed away, she left her entire, entire estate to the purpose of taking care of children in South Texas and, wow. and ensuring, ensuring that uh, our, our children here in, in all of South Texas have access to quality health care. And so that's how Driscoll was founded. Saving the Alamo, saving children's lives. That's exactly right. New slogan, uh, just uh, and I see where to send the invoice for my uh, for my marketing work. There you go. There you go. Is, is there a Driscoll Children's Hospital in Corpus Christi? Because there's fixing to be one here. There, that's exactly right. Yes, that is the original Driscoll Children's Hospital is in Corpus Christi. Uh, it's been there since uh, I, I believe since the uh, early 1950s, and uh, and we uh, and we have served th with that that hospital as our health system has grown, we have served all of the, the counties of South Texas, everything from, uh, you know, really from Corpus to all the way West to Eagle Pass, uh, Victoria wow. up, up, up North of, of Corpus and then, and then all the way South here to the Valley. And as a matter of fact, we've actually been serving the Valley for, for, uh, for a couple yeah. of decades now. Yeah with the specialty clinics that we have in Brownsville, McAllen, and Harlingen. Uh, so on a daily basis, uh, Driscoll flies 
pediatric subspecialists down to all of these clinics and uh, and they see see our kids here at home for their for their ambulatory clinic visits. Good lord. That well, p- permit me a crass exclamation and question. How that's a lot of money to fly some doctor in. Why don't they it just is. drive down or whatever? Well, you know, it's 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 about it really it's it's about making it efficient for those physicians. You know, they they also have to to see patients in corpus and they you know, they have surgery days in Corpus and, yeah. and all of those things. So we have to, you know, and they have families too. So, um, so it, it's really, <laughs> that's their yeah. problem. Yeah, right. That's their problem. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. So, Sorry. No, 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 you're, I, you're right. Um, but they, so they, uh, you know, they'll get on a plane at uh, seven 30 in the morning, uh, in Corpus and be here in, in clinic in McAllen by nine o'clock and wow. uh, see a full day of, of clinic and then be back on the plane at five or five thirty. Okay. And be back home with their family by, you know, by dinner time. So uh, it's a commitment that we've made as a health system to not only to, to provide access to care to these kids, but also take care of our medical staff. Yeah. I mean, all joking aside, you want the guy operating on your kid or doing a diagnosis not to be too sleepy or crabby or, you know, whatever. So um, how, um, well, but between the Driscoll operation in Corpus and the hospitals here, which will be taking some children, uh, the Vanny Cook Center, Children's health care is taken care of, right? There's not a child in the Rio Grande in South Texas who goes untended to. That's a that is our vision. Well, that okay. is our vision, absolutely. And you know that the, the really the, the the purpose for us building this hospital in Edinburgh is is to to really prevent children and, and their families from having to travel for for inpatient acute care any further. Now. There will be some services that that we still that those the families will still have to travel for, but there are very yeah. few few and far between. There, um, yeah. You know, no efficiencies of uh, what efficiencies of scale or efficiencies of operation. You don't want you, you only have how many uh, uh, what uh, MRIs that kind of thing. You can't afford to have one in every room. Well, and, and the, that's a good point. And so, so as an example, cardiovascular surgery is a service that has. It requires an enormous amount of resources, and you want if you're going to have your your child go through a, an open heart surgery, you want to take that your your child to a place that does a lot of those surgeries. Yeah. So we do a lot of those surgeries in Corpus Christi, and so that for now, you know, our plan would be for those open heart surgeries to continue to be done in Corpus Christi, where the team is there. Open uh, heart surgeries for children? Yes, yeah, the, yeah. Cardiovascular surgeries, a lot of congenital, you know. But a lot of times it's on babies with congenital heart defects. And so, um, so, so yes, yeah, so, so that'll be one of those service lines that, that families will still need to travel to Corpus for. But that's, again, uh, really a rare exception. Uh, we, we're going to have in Edinburgh, we're going to have just about every subspecialty and every service uh, that, would, that, a, that a, you know, a, a child will need. That's amazing. Uh, let's reintroduce you, and I want to make sure I pronounce your name right. Matt Wol- Wolhoff? Wolthoff. Wolthoff. That's right. That's right. I'm sorry to butcher it, but we we, we throw in name butchering for free. Well, that's uh, great. <laughs> he's president of the Driscoll Children's Hospital of the Rio Grande Valley, which is being built next to Edinburgh Regional? Uh, no, sir. So it's actually being built uh, right next door to the Women's Center at Doctors Hospital. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, they got a lot of land over there. Um, yes, yes. How long before you're um, you're ready to have the champagne open house? So we are looking to to see our first patient a year from now. So we're you know it's all dependent upon the construction schedule, and you know how those those things can move. <laughs> yeah. But but uh, we feel confident that a year from now we will be open, and um, and so so we're we're uh, we're excited and and if you, if you drive by the construction site on McCall, you'll see the progress. They're they're making good progress every day. Yeah, unfortunately, we don't have many rain delays. Um, yeah, true. Uh, who oversees the construction? I, I mean, somebody has to write some. Uh, this is not a slam at the, but somebody has to watch and make sure everything's being done. And I guess there's always questions from the part of the builder. Sure. Uh, Sure. Is that you so, or somebody so, else? Well, so we have a, a team. 
you know, we have a large team, as a matter of fact, on both sides. So, so um, you know, we the the contractor is is you know is responsible for for the day to day operations, but we have uh, we have consultants that that are you know that are quality that are focused on quality and making sure that things are done according to to, to plans. Yeah. Um, and and uh, you know we have a, a commissioning agent at the end of the day when the building's ready to be commissioned to make sure that everything works properly. So so it's a large team that's working on this. Is there? Um... Four forty-eight. I got to watch my time. Is there um, is there anything that you have to do? One has to do in building a hospital for children, and I don't know if there's an age limit legally or just practically. Is there anything you have to do that's different than for a general uh, general admission hospital? And I'm, I guess the regulators. I mean, there's certain standards of cleanliness and care. And I don't know if those change all the time or what. So that's a, that's a great question, and actually, that's what distinguish, distinguishes us from other hospitals that provide pediatric care. So there's a lot of adult hospitals out there that provide some form of pediatric care, uh, but this will be the ninth hospital in Texas to to be a designated children's hospital. Wow! And only the, and only the 39th hospital in the in the country. Really? Uh, yes. Wow. And, and so there are requirements and, and that re- requires additional resources. Uh, a lot of it has to do with the special, the, the physician specialties that we have to provide to take care of those kids. And that, you know, that comes at a great, great, uh, you know, a lot of resources, great cost. Uh, but there's also some services within the building and within our team that we, you know, just are, are by regulation have to provide to take, to take care of kids in a designated children's facility. So um, yes, there are specific requirements for for coverage for services and those kind of things that that make us unique and, and we also get reimbursed differently uh to to help cover some of those those costs but yeah but uh, it's a lot of resources that go into a children's hospital is there any extra free money coming from any government to driscoll because not because they're children, because they're bio, they're going to be mostly Hispanic children. I'm assuming, uh, since we're 85 percent Mexican American, and some some de- some cohorts of demographics is going to be like 100 percent. So, anything sure. different? Uh, you know, no, not not there is, and generally speaking, for um, for for all hospitals across the country, there's there 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 are some additional government funds for what they call a disproportionate share of. Yeah. Medicaid, right? So, and we see our, um, a predominant amount of our of our patients are our Medicaid patients. And that, wow! And, and so, so there is some additional funding there, um, but but no, it's it's it. You know, really, are where we uh, where we are different in terms of our reimbursement is because of the children's hospital. So there's a different different uh, different rate in t- for 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 children's hospitals. Uh, I, I want to incentivize. I would assume separate care on the my, my impression has been i forgive me if i sound to the listeners like i'm doing most talking i read somewhere that children are not little adults in terms of dosing and also the way medicines will work on children i mean i never thought about that um That's exactly i assume there's a rising consciousness amongst the people holding the the money that yeah these are different it's a different thing yeah, that, that's absolutely right. It, it, you know, it's a it's a specialty. In, yeah, it's, a, it's a specialty hospital, and, and so we have we will have, you know, all of our nurses will, will be will be trained uh, to to specifically take care of pediatrics. Which you're right, it's it's a very different, um, you know, different population than taking care of uh, adults and primary. You know, in, in our in our adult hospitals in our market. You know, a lot of a lot of those patients are geriatric patients, so it's really the opposite end of the spectrum. You know, anything that we have, uh, so it's going to be a year, and it's next to the women's hospital, the doctors' hospital at Renaissance, and which is uh, the northeast corner of Dove and McCall. That's correct. Anything else? Anything else we've left out? Yeah, just that you know we're 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 actively recruiting. Uh, we're going to have you know over 500 new jobs. Uh, we we uh, have a lot of 
pediatric specialists in the market currently that will be coming to work at our hospital, but we're going to be recruiting more. And, and it, you know, the, a big part of this is just increasing access to care for kids throughout the Rio Grande Valley. So as we do that, yeah. uh, we are going to be recruiting uh, more physician subspecialists and, and more staff and more nurses. Um, so uh, we'll be having recruiting events. We've, we already have uh, close to 200 Ner- uh, employees uh, that we've we've hired and, and, wow. and accepted offers, uh, and and we'll you know again be con- continuing to recruit and hire the best, brightest uh, you know here in the valley and, and elsewhere to to uh, to really make sure that we provide that high quality care for our kids. That's very very exciting, uh, and uh, don't if if you decide to do a talk show, uh, you know radio or Zoom talk show thing. Hey, I know a couple of guys who would fit right in. <laughs> oh, there. By the way, uh, while you were talking, I was looking up Clara Driscoll because I was thinking two things. And I don't think they're crass. I'm thinking, man, she had a lot of money, uh, which is a good thing. Absolutely. I'm, I'm running out of time. She went to finishing school in France. She, uh, she was a very, she came from, from a very affluent ranching background. And, Accomplished. And so- yeah, and, and, and accomplished a lot on her own. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you very much for being with us. We appreciate it. Good luck to the Driscoll Children's Hospital in the Rio Grande Valley. This is the 956 Drive Home. I'm Davis Rankin. You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. As long as you're scrolling through your phone, checking out your friend's latest Instagram post, take a moment to download the Radio Parami app. Take the app with you wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Stay updated with top and bottom of the hour news and the latest weather forecast. Plus, you can listen live to local talk shows, nationally syndicated programs, and listen to previous interviews you might have missed, all in crystal clear digital audio. It's called the Radio Potomy app. Find it in your Google Play or Apple App Store from your friends at News Talk 710-KURV. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710-KURV and KURV.com. Here's Zach. We got to talk about ERCOT. Why? Because, well, ERCOT has been in the news really, really frequently as of late. And to talk about this, uh, Michelle Richmond is the executive director for the Texas Competitive Power Advocates, or TCPA. They're a nonprofit trade association, and they're uh, energy experts. So right now, as far as ERCOT goes, what's what's your opinion on what's going on with it right now? Uh, well, you know, we're in uh, tight conditions, and I think uh, this is going to be our new normal until we get some new combined cycle gas plant built in ERCOT. So what you're seeing is we've got a a system that's heavily dependent on uh, renewable energy, which is great in terms of cheap power, but it's weather dependent. So if the wind's not blowing and the sun's not shining, uh, then we get into some tight conditions. And we've had many people move into the state over the last decade. Uh, So our demand has increased. And unfortunately, the... uh, the units, the, the generators that can be turned on and turned off at ERCOT instruction, um, the market hasn't been uh, in a situation that supports those units. So we haven't had the build out that would keep up with the demand. You know, it's fascinating. Depending on who you ask, we either don't have enough green energy or we have too much mm-hmm. green energy. And either way, from both perspectives, it's kind of what's driving the problem with ERCOT right now. Uh, when did we start having these um, problems? When did we start uh, kind of transitioning into a situation like this where now it's affecting us and we we can't help but stare it in the face? Well, so, I mean, this has really been a, an issue that's at least a decade in the making. We have an unusual market design. Um, we're the only one in the country where our market has been built on uh, putting out the cheapest power possible, which is great for a consumer's pocketbook. Um, but we don't pay anything to generators for being available. So if they're not producing power, they're not making any money, which is fine, except that when you have to make an investment in a plant that's several hundred million dollars or a billion dollars, um, that doesn't work. So so we have seen uh, the last new combined cycle gas plant was brought online in ERCOT in 2017. 
So we've seen what we call peakers. Those are much smaller plants that are, are designed to just run at the peak of, of day. Uh, but other than that, that's really all we have seen built, whereas we've seen a huge amount of wind and solar come on the system. Um, they have benefited from, you know, federal tax subsidies, um, which has made them even more affordable to put on the system. But, you know, again, you need a, a grid that has an all of the above fuel mix. And we just don't have enough of that power that you can turn on and turn off when you need it um, to power the grid. So the Public Utility Commission is in the middle of uh, redesigning how our market functions to put a focus on reliability instead of affordability. We want affordable power, but it's important that we be able to turn on our AC and our light switches with, with some confidence that they're going to be there when we need it. Um, and so we have been asking uh, them to align what the state wants in terms of the reliability of our grid with that market to bring those types of resources into the market. And we expect a decision sometime this year. We need a final decision this year because it takes about two years to bring a new combined cycle gas plant uh, on, into service. Joining us on 710 KURV is Michelle Richmond, Executive Director of the Texas Competitive Power Advocates. Uh, Davis Franken, do you have a question? Uh, yes, this is Davis Franken. Who decides how how electric power is going to be generated, uh, sent, and charged for in the state of Texas? So the market design structure overall was uh, created by the legislature. The Public Utility Commission implements how that market is going to work and creates the rules around it. And then ERCOT, the grid operator, is the one that actually dispatches the power and settles the market when it's all said and done. So it's, it's a kind of a three-pronged approach. And we have what we call a competitive market in ERCOT when it comes to wholesale generation. So generation owners will bid into the market based on what they think they can produce power for and be able to cover their costs. And then we, we put power onto the grid based on the lowest cost power that's available. And nobody, um, I think, um, AEP, I don't know if AEP, <clears throat> name Reliant, there's a name I can remember. Reliant uh, contacts us about taking their power. They, I don't know if they, they don't, mm -hmm. on the lines, I don't think into my house, but um, so do they have to ask permission to raise, to raise the rate or, or can they raise the rate however they want to? So the retail, Reliant is a retail electric provider. So they go out and purchase the power from the generators based on how many customers and how much demand they expect to need. Um, okay. And so then they bill their customers for that. AEP is the wires and poles company. Um, so the power runs through their wires and their poles. They maintain the transformers and, and all of that. But Reliant is your bill provider. They they base the prices on, you know, what, number one, what will the market bear and what does it cost for them to go out and buy that power to provide to yeah. you? Uh, so what do we got to do? Uh, since I joined this a little bit late, I should tell the listeners, what do we got to do to fix this problem so that the equipment doesn't break? And we, and we have uh, air conditioning well, and cheap, cheaper power. So generators are doing everything they can to make sure that things don't break. Uh, it's kind of like running, you know, the example I like to use is running your car. And some of our power plants are, you know, a few years old. And some of our power plants were built in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And so think about your car. If you've got an old car, the more you run it, the more maintenance is going to need to be done on it. Otherwise, it's going to break down and leave you stranded on the freeway. Yeah. And so that's what we need with the power plants, especially those older ones. We're running them harder than we ever have and in conditions that are much more extreme than the manufacturers ever expected. 
So it means they're going to have more maintenance and it means that things are going to going to break sometimes. So they take those power plants offline when it's a more opportune time. For example, when the wind is blowing really hard and they know that their pa- that power is not going to be needed on the grid and they fix those things so that when we have days where we have low wind, uh, they are ready to go and they can produce at maximum performance. So that's that's one step and that's something that generation owners do all the time because they want to be there producing power. That's, that's what they do. Uh, what we need to do is we need the Public Utility Commission to adopt a new market design that says, while we value affordable power, we also value reliable power. And yeah. we need more of that reliable power to come into this market. And if they can do that this fall, then I think you'll see some some new investment in power plants. But right now, the way the economics works, there are many generation owners that would love to build a new combined cycle plant, gas plant in ERCOT. But when they go to the bank or they go to investors, investors look at our market and say, that's too risky. We just can't do it. So mm-hmm. we need a market that is less risky that allows them to build those plants and bring that power to market so that we don't have these tight conditions. But unfortunately, until we see that happen, we are going to have these tight conditions, probably not just this summer, but next summer too. It's our hope that the I Public was... Utility Commission is going to make a decision this fall and that we'll see new power plants start to be built over the next uh, year to two years. I was just about to ask how long that would take. That that sounds like... Uh... I don't know if it's a if it's a solution to the to the main problem or how it's all going to play out, but uh, we're going to keep an eye on it. That's for sure. Thank Especially you, ma'am. As, as many notifications from archives we're getting. Thanks for your time, Michelle Richmond, Executive Director for the Texas Competitive Power Advocates, joining us on seven ten K U R V. You're listening to an encore presentation of the nine five six Drive Home on News Talk seven ten K U R V and K U R V dot com. your day with news and interviews important to you with the Valley's Morning News weekday morning starting at 6. Sergio Sanchez and Tim Sullivan bring you the latest headlines and hourly discussions with AccuWeather to get you ready for your day and special guest interviews on topics that affect you and your family. Good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, guys. Well, let's now enjoy the show. It's what you need to start your day. The Valley's Morning News with Sergio Sanchez and Tim Sullivan. Weekday morning starting at 6 on News Talk 710 KURV. As long as you're scrolling through your phone, checking out your friend's latest Instagram post, take a moment to download the Radio Para Mi app. Take the app with you wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Stay updated with top and bottom of the hour news and the latest weather forecast. Plus, you can listen live to local talk shows, nationally syndicated programs, and listen to previous interviews you might have missed, all in crystal clear digital audio. It's called the Radio Potomy app. Find it in your Google Play or Apple App Store from your friends at News Talk 710 KURV.